0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. The text for this morning's sermon is the gospel appointed for the Feast of Transfiguration. The gospel according to St. Matthew, the 17th chapter, beginning at verse 1. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Thus far, the gospel of our Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Lord takes his three favorite disciples up on a high mountain. There he is transfigured before them. The whiteness and the brightness tell us that his glory, usually concealed from sight, shine forth for Peter, James, and John to see. The glory is always there. Jesus is glorious. But most of the time, people do not see it. I will come back to that in a little bit. Moses and Elijah appear talking with Jesus. Your sermon hymn this morning, the appointed hymn of the day. Makes reference to Elias. If you go from one language to another, names sometimes get a little bit translated too. So, John in Spanish becomes Juan and in German becomes Johann, but it's the same name. Elijah is Hebrew. It gets translated into Greek as Elias and the translator of your Bible. Turned it back to Elijah for you. How did Peter, James, and John know who those two people were? They had lived centuries earlier. It's not as though artists had preserved accurate paintings of how they had looked or something. Perhaps the Lord used their names in conversation. Perhaps it was simply revealed to them. But one way or another, God caused the three disciples of our Lord to know who those two men were. There were many men of great importance in the Old Testament. Moses was certainly at the top, but just in terms of Importance. There were others, David, Isaiah. So why Moses and Elijah? Well, very often when Jesus refers to the Old Testament, he calls it the Law and the Prophets. Or sometimes the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. If I'd brought my Hebrew Old Testament... Hebrew scriptures with me, on the binding you would see Hebrew letters that you couldn't read and they write backwards from us too. But it says there Torah, Naveim, Kithuvim. Torah is the Torah, the five books of Moses. Naveim is the prophets, Elijah. And then kithuvim is the writings, which basically means, well, if we if it doesn't belong to prophets and it doesn't belong to Torah, it goes in there. And the largest book of the writings was the prophets. So when he refers to the law and the prophets, or when he refers to the law and the prophets and the Psalms, he's referring to what you think of as the Old Testament. And so there is a simple and yet profound point to the appearance of these two particular men as our lord is transfigured and that point is this jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and yes also of the writings he fulfills all of the promises that god made in the old testament which would be more than enough material for several sermons all by itself. From the beginning of Genesis, when the Lord cursed the serpent, vowing that the woman's seed would crush his head. And covering Adam and Eve's now shameful nakedness with the skins of sacrificed animals. To Abraham's Almost sacrifice, but non-sacrifice of his son Isaac and prophesying that the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice from the blood of the Passover lamb to the passing through the waters to Isaiah's prophecies of a suffering servant to Daniel's vision of one like the son of man to the promise of a king riding on a donkey. The whole point of the Old Testament was Jesus. The whole point was law and gospel. The law showing what a serious and grievous matter our sin is before God, but also the gospel promise of salvation through faith in the coming one promised by God. As it is written, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. All of that pointed forward to and was fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Critically important, by the way, if you read the Old Testament. You can if you can read it, if you can read it without seeing Christ in it, you're reading it wrong. Many people do that. And taking Christ out of the equation they start to find fault with the Scriptures. They see a God of mercy and salvation, but they also see a God of wrath and punishment. And they want to just dismiss the whole thing because it seems inconsistent. As it is, if we try to run god Holistically in both the New Testament and the old, we plainly see that we do not have a one track God. We have a two track God in terms of how he deals with us. A God of both law and gospel. And until that is recognized and embraced, the Scriptures will never make any sense. But once you do see and understand this, they make all the sense in the world. God's wrath showing us just how seriously the law is to be taken. And then also His mercies upon the repentant believing ones made all the sweeter by our knowledge of how great the wrath was that we deserved and will not have to face. So take this to heart. Instead of turning from God because of his harshness, recognize rather the seriousness of your sins, and repent and rejoice that on account of Christ everything is forgiven you. Everything. Okay. So we have seen that Jesus is glorious and we have seen that he fulfills the Old Testament. How then shall we respond to this? Never at loss for words. Peter has an idea. Let us make here three tabernacles. It seems kind of understandable to me. Build monuments to commemorate great events. And this is certainly up there in terms of great events. If you're involved in something, well, you want to make your contribution. And that's Peter. He wants to make his contribution. But God entrusts him and us with another response. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. The salvation our Lord brings to us is not something we contribute to. Jesus does the work. God gives us His gifts by grace. We are but the passive recipients. Hear Him. Listen to what Jesus has to say to you. And believe it. Believe that Jesus is the glorious Son of God as the voice of the Father and His radiant appearance and the cloud of the glory of God all tell you. Believe that He has come to fulfill all that the Old Testament pointed forward to. And believe that He has done this for you and for your salvation. Particularly telling are our Lord's words. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. We've heard words like that before just last week's sermon. Don't tell anyone. On Transfiguration Sunday, we conclude a season that focuses on the Lord's person, true God and true man. And then we move into a season that focuses on the Lord's work, particularly His. Work of dying on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That our Lord Jesus is the glorious Son of God does us no good if He does not also atone for our sins. So spreading the word of the glory that these three disciples beheld would have people turning to Jesus out of reverence perhaps for His might and majesty, but not turning to Him as their Savior from sin, death, and the devil. This is why there's a time limit on their silence. They can tell about it after He is risen from the dead once jesus has died for the sin of the world and risen again then it will matter that they tell people exactly who it was that died for them but without his death on the cross knowledge of his glory would only misdirect people so he tells them To keep quiet for now. Of course. Sitting where we are today. Christ is long since both crucified and risen. So talk about it the disciples do. And I pray you will as well. It is recorded in the Gospels. This morning's epistle. Had St. Peter referencing that glorious day? We did not follow cunningly invented fables. And whenever and wherever our Lord's transfiguration is celebrated, such as today, the story is told again. Now, I said clear back at the beginning of this sermon that I wanted to return To the glory that is always there, but usually not seen. I want to come back to this because of what St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He admonishes the believers, us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Greek word for what is supposed to be happening to you, you are supposed to be being transformed. That transformed word is the same Basic word as what gets translated as transfigured in this morning's gospel. The word is literally, you know, the word metamorphosis. Metamorphe, that's the word. You are new creations in Christ Jesus. God grant us all to be transformed. To be metamorphed from the old sinful beings that we are by nature into the saints, into the holy ones, living our lives in a way that is visibly different from worldlings. So let us consider what relationship there is between Christ's metamorphosis slash transfiguration and the one to which the Apostle calls us. How is it that the same word is placed on us as the one used to describe Jesus when he became indescribably radiant? Does St. Paul mean that we are supposed to be all Radiant like that. Clearly not. But as those who are baptized into our Lord's death and resurrection. As those who are bodied and blooded to the Lord in his holy supper. Most of all, as those who have done the very thing that the voice of God commanded us to do in this morning's text. As those who listen to Jesus, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. And that is to transfigure us. Our lives are to grow in looking more and more like the holy life that Christ supremely exemplified And by the same measure, our lives are to look less and less like that old sinful Adam who is to be drowned and to die daily. Specifically, do not be conformed to this world. I remember a long time ago when, by the grace of God, and I receive it as a gift, I moved from California to Texas. I noticed this. Profound cultural difference in California if people are getting to know you one of the first things people want to know and to tell is this what makes you unique what makes you different what is your eccentricity Whereas in Texas, folks often want to know, how normal are you? Are you a regular guy, a regular gal? Do you conform? That's a sweeping generalization, of course. The danger of the what is your eccentricity approach is that people will then feel a subtle pressure to sort of a little bit weird one another. For which reason Austin gets picked on as being California East. Not to say that they do that in California, of course. Not to say that they don't either. Some of that foolishness is easy to poke fun at and fun to poke fun at too because we get a laugh at other people's silliness And it helps us avoid looking at ourselves and repenting of our own sins. But repenting of our own sins and being forgiven them is exactly what we're here to do. Beware of the cultural pressure that your society places on you to conform. There are plenty of sins that even more or less Christian elements of your society consider quite normal. And they brush them off like they're no big deal. Do not be like that. Remember the Old Testament. Remember God's wrath against sin seen there very much, but also very clear in the New Testament too. If there are sins that in your society or in the home you grew up in or whatever seem normal and no big deal, pay extra attention to those. Be extra careful to repent of the sins that you are tempted to think of as normal. The sins that are then all too easily handed down from one generation to the next. Our Lord warns, in the Old Testament that he punishes the sins of the fathers on the heads of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. It's not predestination, but it's a forewarning. For the sake not only of your own soul, but for your children and their children and their children after that, repent of your sins do not normalize them. Do not hand them on. Little sins become big sins when you start to think little of them. And unrepented, even little sins can destroy you. Do not be conformed to this world. Rather, we are told, be transformed or transfigured by the renewing of your mind. Scripture and your catechisms speak of a new nature, a new creation, a Christ-like nature that is given to each of us as we are brought to faith in him. This is the new nature that your catechisms tell you is to daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever, that is what your baptism indicates. You are invited, encouraged. The gospel of forgiveness of sins and eternal life on account of Christ Jesus even creates in our hearts that gratitude that feels a certain compulsion continually to be transfigured, continually to be putting away that old sinful nature and living according to the new creation, according to the you that is actually going to live forever. This happens by way of the renewing of your mind. Your minds are renewed quite simply by continually hearing the word of the Lord. By doing what the voice that came from the cloud instructed Peter, James, and John. Hear him. We have a great gift from God in the Holy Scriptures. A gift that for centuries was not available to all Christians, but we have it. Too often, we squander it. Distracted by the things of the world as we go forth from this Sunday into the Three pre Lent Gesima Sundays and then dive into Lent itself. Undertake to forsake that squandering of God's Word. Undertake to love the Word of God afresh and to devote yourself to its study undertake to hear Him. As you do, God the Holy Spirit, fill your hearts with joy in the good news that all your sins are forgiven you and eternal life is yours on account of the holy life, the innocent suffering and death and the glorious resurrection of your glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.